Hey everyone, this is John Roca for The Cinephiles, doing the preview this week for the film we are covering, and I'm excited to talk about and share it with you all, Major League. That's right, 1989's Major League. Everybody has been talking about us covering this film, and we are excited to finally release this episode. We recorded it a few weeks ago, just as the peak of uh, the coronavirus shutdowns and uh, productions going into uh, delays uh, was announced, uh, and we were able to secure as our guest... Uh, returning to the cinephiles after she has already been a guest for us for A League of Their Own, the great Kay Cannon, writer, director, and actress Kay Cannon. She is our guest for Major League. I know a lot of you are like, what? Kay Cannon? Major League? This is one of her favorite films, and uh, when we did A League of Their Own, I'm sure you'll remember, we talked about having Kay come on as our guest for Major League. Well, it finally happened. This one is directed by David Ward, or David S. Ward, depending on what year you're looking up his uh, biography. He uh, The film uh, deals with the new owner of the Cleveland Indians, who puts together a purposely horrible team. So they'll lose, and she can move the team to Miami. But when the plot is uncovered, they start winning just to spite her. Uh, this one stars Tom Berenger, Tar- Charlie Sheen, Corbin Burnson, uh, Margaret Witten, who plays the owner of the team, Rachel Phelps, James Gammon, Rene Russ- Russo, and Wesley Snipes as well, as well as a mainstay Chelsea Ross, who you've seen in numerous uh, sports films like Hoosiers and others. Dennis Haysbert is in this as well, well p- playing Pedro Serrano. And of course, Bob Euchre, the legendary Bob Euchre as Harry Doyle. All of us who've watched Major League, I'm sure, have quoted numerous lines from this movie. This is a fantastic film. We're breaking this one up over two parts. Uh, and if you want to purchase the film, you can do so at www.cine-files.net. That's www.cine-files.net. Uh, go and get the movie there. And, of course, our short. We always do a short as well, or we're trying to do more shorts. The short this week is very interesting, personal short uh, between Steve and I where we discuss our feelings about being in the now, about trying to be in the now on the heels of my Schmodown loss and how I was a little bit unsettled by the end in that uh, in that uh, uh, extra time, we discuss what it's like to struggle to be in the now. And Steve suggests some books uh, about that can help you kind of get into that place of understanding the flow zone uh, and what have you. So we really get it was a very personal discussion. Steve started recording before I knew we were recording. So some very honest back and forth between us uh, that I I think a lot of you will enjoy a little peek behind our curtains and I don't mean curtains in terms of the show but curtains in terms of who we are as people uh, fantastic uh, uh, short there so enjoy that and enjoy part one of Major League this week on the Cinephiles how would you like to manage the Indians this year I don't know what do you mean you don't know this is a chance to manage in the big leagues. Let me think it over, will you, Charlie? I got a guy on the other line about some white walls. I'll talk to you later. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, voiceover artist guy, and currently the CEO of the Outlaw Nation uh, channel. So uh, having fun doing that, and I'm excited to talk about this film, a staple of my life since 1989. Uh, it's always been inside and not just a bit outside. So I'm excited, so excited to talk about this film. 
Well, this movie has come up over and over again as one we wanted to do someday. And I don't even think I put it in the category of guilty pleasure. I put this in the category of genuine real pleasure that I like to revisit. And one of the places that we talked about this movie was with one of our favorite guests, Kay Cannon, on the episode of League of Their Own. And Kay made us promise to swear that if we ever did Major League, that she would come on as a guest. And I am very thrilled to welcome back director, writer, producer, Kay Cannon. Welcome back to The Cinephiles. So happy to be back, and I'm glad you kept your promise. <laughs> Listen, I was a I was a Boy Scout, and I had to swear all these oaths, and I had to say that I was honest and trustworthy. And so, uh, my dad would take away my Eagle Scout if we hadn't uh, if we hadn't kept that promise. <laughs> well, um, I, one one of the biggest surprises ever was when K-, K said when she started singing along with the song for Major League. That just kind of blew my mind that this uh, you know this is a film that she loved as well. So when you said you wanted to do it, I was like, we're not doing this until Kay can do it. We're not doing it until Kay can do it. <laughs> so I'm glad that we've made this happen. And and for those of you who haven't listened to the League of Their Own uh, episode, Kay is a writer who wrote on 30 Rock, became a producer on 30 Rock, New Girl. By the way, 30 Rock is one of my favorite sitcoms of all time. Uh, she is the writer of the extremely successful, very fun, and strangely enough, sports film model <laughs> Pitch Perfect series. She's the director of Blockers, which I think is one of the funniest movies that's come out in a long time. And really? currently, it was in the middle of the shutdown production of Cinderella. Um, what was that like, uh, being in the midst of a movie in the midst of a pandemic? It's it's all surreal and so crazy. And, um, and also, like, there aren't... I, I'm curious to know the number of people, of directors who had movies going that they were shooting that they were in the middle of that stopped. I, I don't think there's probably a, a high number of those. So I'll look back at this time and I, I think let's say there's 30, <laughs> let's just say there's 30 movies of people who are like in the middle of, you know, like that I will have, I'll be able to like look at another director who went through this and be like, can you believe this? Can you believe it? I mean, it was just, I mean, it's unprecedented. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Matt Reeves uh, was shooting in London there as well in Liverpool in the uh, shooting the Batman and he had to delay that yeah. and they were all quarantined for two weeks in Liverpool and they still can't start to uh, still haven't started shooting again so yeah everything is shut down so that you're probably a handful of directors for sure but some big projects including Cinderella so yeah and you know they were about to start shooting Uncharted uh, oh, right. They were going to shoot Uncharted, I think, that Monday. Mm-hmm. And they they were all a go. Um, so that would have been um, like the 16th of March. Uh, they were going to start shooting. And, and you know, like we, we had post uh, – we were at Pinewood Studios and in, in London. And uh, we had our post going. And in the post building, they have all these other movies that are, you know, in post as well. And so I think there was like a Jurassic Park movie or something like mm. Like we were hearing stuff of like, well, this person uh, went home sick because of <laughs> symptoms of, you know, like there were like people in buildings that were like having showing signs and symptoms and stuff like that. So that was a little bit scary. But I do remember like, because I'm, uh, you know, Uncharted is, is with Sony as, as is um, Cinderella. And mm. so we knew that they were, we were acutely aware of like, oh, they're about to start shooting this massively big, huge film. And then of course they didn't. They didn't even start. Yeah. It's so crazy. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, you know, I teach film school. And one of the things I always say to my students is that on every single movie, you will encounter things you've never encountered before. You will face problems you've never faced 
before, and that goes from the tiniest little student film to the biggest movie in the world. But to have every single film in production, every TV show, suddenly face an unprecedented disaster, which will Mm -hmm. completely transform the way the film industry works. I mean, that's... How do you deal with that? Uh, it's just a crazy thing that we're looking to the future of, well, what's this going to be now? It's yeah. almost yeah, like I, n- it's 11 when they shut all the planes down. It's almost like that. I mean, I, I just take it one day at a time. And, you know, I've been asked a lot and, and sort of interviewed a bit about this. And I, I, I've just come to accept that no one knows anything and that patience is our best friend and that um, it will... Like in some ways, if, if I'm looking for any kind of silver lining, one is no one from the cast and crew, everybody's okay. Everybody's okay and, and healthy, knock on wood, and, and that's great. And Because that was like a huge concern of mine. Of course it was. And the other side of it is like, we were about halfway done. So I've been able to work and post and like be like, okay, what do I have? What do I need? How do I course correct? To have three or four months to be able to like course correct or to figure out things that I need. I kind of am going into this when we, when I get to finish this movie and I hope that I do that um, I'll be able to like kind of do my reshoots while I'm doing my shoot, sure. yeah. <laughs> which is like, which is the silver lining, I guess. And that as long as everybody's healthy and that we're safe and it's all good. And you know, everybody's feeling good in that way, that that's like, that's the positive and that's the hope. And that's the like, what I'm trying to put out there in terms of energy and, and knowing that, um, you know, a movie stopping is nothing in comparison to what the actual real world ramifications of, of how this virus is affecting people. So what I hope is that I do hope I get to finish the movie. I do hope the movie comes out. I do hope people get to see it because I think it's a movie that people will want to see post this pandemic. Mm. I feel like it's, it's something that, you know, People will want to laugh and they'll want to be entertained and they'll want to escape. And, you know, I'm really happy that it's not now, like it's a movie from a long time ago or it's a, it's a story from a long time ago mm. because I don't, as I look to do things moving forward, I don't know how you can't account for what's happened. I don't know how you're not changed by it. Right. And so I'm, I'm glad that doing the Cinderella story, even though it's like, you know, a different, totally different thing, it's from a long time ago where people aren't worried about like when they watch it, they're not going, Oh, did they touch each other? Is there social distancing? Right. Oh. Is there, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. That's kind of fascinating. There's so many things where like, as soon as everyone had cell phones in their hands, all movies had to be different because yeah. we do things yeah. differently. You can't do a mystery the same way. You know, it's like, well, I have all information and all connectivity available all the time. And that changes movies. I hadn't thought about the fact that, Oh, that giant party scene in the middle of your teen comedy in the middle of blockers. Well, they wouldn't do that like that now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you go like for the stuff that's coming out now while it's happening, while we're in it, we when I think an audience member, even if you're not in the business or in the know really, or inside baseball, I think you baseball, mm-hmm. right? no. but I think that you will, you accept it and you like it because you're like, we know it was shot beforehand. And we know, like, I watched The Real Housewives of New York when it came out because I was just like, oh, you know, it kind of brought me <laughs> right. to tears. I was like, oh, that was back before. Yeah, I, yeah, totally. Like, I just wanted to, like, hug it and just be like, oh, remember those times where you could go to a bar and you could sit there and you could, you know, you sit outside and you didn't worry about anything and everybody was living on top of each other. And and, and they're showing these episodes in the middle of this mm horrific nightmare that uh that new york is being resilient and trying to get through 
Um, and then, and then the second episode, I was like, oh, they're just acting like idiots again. <laughs> I kind of didn't, you know, but I think we're okay when it's like stuff that's coming up now while we're in it. But I think when we're past it, I, I just don't know how you can, well, I mean, I'm sure people will find a way, but I think as a creative person, it's like, I feel like you, you just can't deny it. Like it, yeah. it, it, it's forever changed me on a really deep level will always change me. And I feel like most people feel that way. And, and, uh, and it, it changes us in a collective, our collective heartbeat is, is, is forever changed. It's been incredible also to see how many people have really come forward from, you know, from the celebrity side of things to set up these charities and set up these, you know, reunions with the community. Not just the, the one that just got announced, the community one. We had the Parks and Rec one, uh, John Krasinski with the good news story. Like, it's, yeah. it's amazing to see people rallying around this thing to kind of understand how to help people deal with it and navigate it and try to show that, you know, there are positives that can come out of this or there's a positive way to maybe navigate this in the midst all, of all the fear. And so that's that's been incredible to see people's reaction to it, right? That old uh, Mr. Rogers thing is you'll always see, whenever a tragedy happens, you'll always see the people running to help. Don't worry, don't fear for the people running away, fear for the people running to help. That there's always- Yeah, look for the helpers, look yeah. for the artists, look for the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's 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 the big thing that I've, I've noticed that's been a positive overall. And it seems like people have kind of calmed down from the toxicity on the entertainment side of things that had really bubbled up to the like red line uh, too much. And I feel like people maybe are taking a step back, falling back in love with movies with this time, falling back in love with TV shows, things that things like that, that the documentary on the Chicago Bulls, people kind of savoring that a little bit more. And so maybe when we do come back, hopefully for the most part, people will be a little more relaxed and understand and have a little more perspective and context instead of just going right to the anger or to the meanest comment they can find. You know, I hope. Yeah. Two shows that are saving me right now are the watch what happens live on Bravo, mm. which I really love. I've always loved that show, but also the last dance because mm. I'm a Chicagoan who, right. you know, you know, like that, the, the stuff that you learn from that where you're like, Oh, I had no idea. Yep. Cause I was a teenager <laughs> when that was happening, you know, like, right. I, me too. I, but I never, all those games, like I know we, my family, we never missed a game. Right. Right. We never missed right. a game. And, and for all those years. And so that was, it's been pretty incredible to watch. Yeah. Perfect time to fall back in love with Jordan is when everyone's calm. Everyone's yeah. like kind of chilled out. And, and like, oh, even yeah. though he's not a producer on it, we do feel that they obviously asked Michael Jordan to oh, okay yeah. every single frame <laughs> of this documentary. <laughs> Everything was okayed by Michael. Nothing. That's why Isaiah, that's why Isaiah got made fun of so hard. Yeah. I, was like, I mean, it goes like, I'm controlling that. I'm controlling that. You're not interviewing my ex-wife. You're not, to, you know, exactly. he's very much in control. Yeah, you're, I heard he had a lot. Oh, no, Juanita was next to him oh. when he won that first one. <laughs> Please, they cut him, they cut his dad and Juanita out of that shot. And you're like, yeah. oh, all right, we're doing that, are we? So it, it, it's funny. It's funny that that came out just now and all the things that you've talked about, about what we're turning to, because it feels as if John and I, and it wasn't intentional in the last month and a half, have turned to all these comforting movies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these movies from the 80s in particular, because that's when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. And so we recently did Hunt for Red October. We did Field of Dreams. We just put out Silverado. And now here I find us in the middle of uh, Major League. And uh, I have the world's smallest amount of pre-production to talk about in this film. <laughs> um, nice segue. All, it all starts with, uh, <laughs> listen, this is professional podcasting now. <laughs> it all starts with uh, David S. Ward, who is the writer-director. And he, coming right out of UCLA Film School, wrote a little screenplay called The Sting. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's just so amazing that this young guy writes. I mean, it's one of the great screenplays of all time. Yeah. Um, and what's more amazing to me is that he doesn't have that much of a career. Mm-hmm. You know, like writes this amazing screenplay. He writes The Sting 2. He writes a couple of other small things. He writes Major League in 1982. He's from Cleveland. He was a long-suffering Indians fan. And nobody wanted the movie. <laughs> um, and it was finally uh, Redford, who obviously knew him from The Sting, brought him in to do rewrites on Milagro Beanfield War. Oh, wow. And that was what gave him the juice to finally get Major League made in 89. Wow. Um, and that is all the pre-production I have on well, this film. Let, let me throw some things out there. David, he said he wrote this film because he didn't think the Indians would ever win a pennant in his lifetime. And he thought this is the closest thing he'll ever get to actually seeing them do so. So that was a lot of it. Uh, Bob Euchre came on to the film. Uh, David Ward just liked him on Mr. Belvedere and a couple other things. Had no idea that he had been the Milwaukee Brewers announcer (laughs) for 20 years. Uh, And a majority of the scenes you see that are shot in the film are in the Milwaukee Stadium. They're not in Cleveland at all. And so uh, all of that they had to set up and and go forward with it. Uh, And all all of these characters are based on real life uh, baseball players. Not that they were named Rick Vaughn or they were named uh, Jake. They had different names, but they're based on real life baseball players. Uh, so, and as we go along, you know, we'll we'll talk about that. I'm sure. If only David had Google before hiring Bob. <laughs> He's like, I saw him on Mr. Belvedere. I I saw him in the Miller Lite commercial. Yeah, Miller Lite, <laughs> I think Give he's great. Guy. <laughs> he's he's so amazing in this movie, Bob yeah. Um And that's kind of let's. I think we should just roll right into this film. Head off to Cleveland. Listen to a Randy <laughs> Newman song, which he says he picked because it is the only song about Cleveland. <laughs> there are no Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett songs about Cleveland. This is it. There's a red moon rising. On the Cuyahoga River. And this montage is some of the only stuff shot in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is because uh, the Browns were, were in preseason when they did this, so they couldn't use the stadium. And there's some newspapers that show the last time the Indians win the pennant and then the 30-year slump. And that we see, you know, some Cleveland Indians fans, including a nun in Indians jacket who is apparently was a real Cleveland character. She's a real nun. She's a huge baseball fan, went to every single game. And, of course, they got her in the movie. And then we find out that this uh, Vegas showgirl is now the owner of the team. Wait, can we stop for a second, Steve? You haven't asked us when we first encountered the movie. You that's are our 100% st- right. That's our standard cinephiles thing. Remember a few minutes ago where I said that I was now a professional podcaster? <laughs> <laughs> John, how, where, how did you first come to Major League? Oh, man. Not, I, I couldn't have run to the movie theater quick enough to see this movie. I mean, this is prime Charlie Sheen. This was Tom Berenger like three years after uh, a Platoon. I was a massive Corbin Burns Burnson fan coming out of L.A. Law, uh, and I didn't know who this Wesley Snipes kid was. So there was no, a lot no. of new people in this film that I was discovering for the first time, Renee Russo, all that. So I wanted to run, because I think Field of Dreams is the same year, isn't it? 89, both yeah. both of these films. So it's like, this was baseball, man. And so I was running, I was in the heat of my Yankees fandom at this time and the love of baseball. And so I remember going to see this with my friend Maurice, who's a big baseball fan as well. And we just had a great time with this movie. And since I saw that. I've seen it. Uh, I saw it in the theater multiple times. I've owned every version of it from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray that you can create uh, because it just it has a special magic for me. So it's always stayed with me. 
Kate, do you remember how you first came to it? I do because um, we, I'm from a really small town. And so you have like, you go to the big town to go see the movies and then they trickled to what uh, the one movie theater in my small town, which was called the Mar. And so it'd be like a, like a $2 movie or right. something like that. I, unlike you, John, I mm-hmm. wasn't like, like, Oh, I got to go see a baseball movie at, mm-hmm. at that time. Like I was like a, a teenager who just was like, Oh, I'm going to go see a comedy for like two bucks right. uh, at the Mar with my friends. But we, you know, I loved it so much because, and it stayed with me. I also big Field of Dreams fan, huge Field of Dreams fan, but it stayed because, um, because it was a Midwest movie. It felt mm-hmm. like, it felt like home. Like it felt like, you know, oh, you know, and I love an underdog story. And then just the, at the time, so like, remember the 85, 86 Chicago Bears had mm-hmm. like real personalities on that sure. team for the, and so that idea of the, these personalities, um, from uh, the movie from Major League was like oh that it just like re- really reminiscent of the Chicago Bears mm-hmm. and that I that love I was still on the high of that win even though it was four years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but also just like I just thought it was so like I I was so influenced by it and not to be like make it sound all hoity-toity now but just like this movie influenced my comedic sensibilities hands down like. Wow. I saw this movie and you know, like you had catchphrases, you had strong characters that you never forgot that each had their own like comedic worldview and whatever. And then it was an underdog story about sports. I was like, I'm in. Yeah. And not only is the team an underdog, every single character on the team is an underdog underdog to the team. So it, yeah. like, it's just chock full of underdogs uh, on a larger level and a smaller level as well. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, and I'll, and I'll say how I came to the film in a, in a moment. But but something I was thinking about a lot when watching this is that it's it's very silly and comedic in all these ways that are kind of over the top. Um, and at the but what makes I think it work so well? Not that that I don't mean to say that that comedy isn't good. I think it's right. really good. But part of what makes it work so well is the spine of the film. The structure oh, yeah. is a classic sports movie that's really really well done, beat to beat, and with every single character having their journey and their growth and their you know and their moment where they achieve what they need to achieve. You know, it's it's so beautifully structured, yeah. which yeah. wasn't a thing I thought about at the time. By the way, John, my story is exactly like yours. Mm-hmm. I was a fan of the. People, you know, I'd seen Platoon. I knew Tom Barron. I, I thought he was going to be this oh, yeah. huge star. Yeah. Do you remember, Absolutely. by the way, a movie I watched over and over again I haven't seen in 20 years is Shoot to Kill with yeah. um, Sidney Poitier <laughs> yes. and Tom Berenger? I thought that movie and, was so cool. And Kirstie Alley. Oh, that's right. She's, she's the, the girl on the mountain. She's the girl. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's his name is the bad guy. Um, I forget, forget his name now. But anyway, like, so when this movie comes out, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be great. And definitely saw it in the theater. Definitely watched it over and over and over again on VHS. And, and it was so funny. Uh, Karen had never seen it. So we, or at least as far as she remembered. And the first half hour, she was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if this is me. <laughs> By the time we got to the end, I looked over at her and I'm like, oh, she's in. Yeah. She, this has worked. <laughs> anyway, John, thank you for keeping me back on track. Uh, and uh, we're going back into the film where we meet the showgirl now owner of the film played by Margaret Witten. Uh, she's great yeah. as a bad guy. Yeah. Um, she was sexy. She was sexy because I remember her in <laughs> Secret of My Success. Right. 
She also had that, she was the aunt seducing Michael J. Fox. She had this kind of confidence and sexiness to her that was great to see in the 80s, you know, from an actress taking on roles like this. Um, I think she does an amazing job hmm. uh, playing the, a really, really love to hate her bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and she comes in with her board and her general manager and she says, Spring training begins in two weeks. Here's a list of the players we'll be inviting to camp. And the reaction around the room to this list of names is fantastic. Some of these guys never even had a prime. Yeah. <laughs> this guy here is dead. <laughs> well, cross him off the list. <laughs> um, and then we immediately go into one of uh, three montages as we go around Cleveland and we hear what the reactions to the, these people are. How do you think the Indians will do this year? It doesn't look too good. These guys don't look too fucking good. Climaxing with our two Japanese groundkeepers who in subtitle says they're shitty. <laughs> um, apparently those are actually a father and a son. Uh, and now we meet with Charlie, the general manager, and this is where we find out what the plot is. It's still unclear about a couple of things. Really? Like what? Well, if I'm the GM... Who's going to be the manager? I was thinking of Lou Brown. Who's Lou Brown? He's managed the Toledo Mud Hens of the International League for the last 30 years. <laughs> that is a real minor league team, the Toledo Mud Hens. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, it's like the Durham Bulls. I think he'll fit right in with our team concept. What exactly is our team concept? That's what I wanted to talk to you about, Charlie. I want to put together a team that'll help us relocate to Miami. What do you mean? Some of these guys are furniture movers? I'm serious about this, Charlie. And this is right off the beginning. We say what the plot of the film is. Mm. That if the ha- attendance goes into the toilet, that they can go to Miami where she's going to get a brand new stadium with bu- luxury seats and a, a mansion and a membership and all the club. And all she's got to do is have a team that really, really loses. I mean, it's reminiscent, right, to the last dance, right? When you talk about Jerry Krause wanting them not to make the playoffs and mm-hmm. so they can get a number one draft pick or whatever. Like yeah. that really? notion, so that sports notion of like, we got to be bad so we can change and, and right. get something else. Because he wants control. He wants credit. He wants to be seen as the person who does it. Uh, yeah. that's, that's his impetus here. With her, she wants to move the team. And by the way, she's based on uh, loosely, very loosely, on Georgia Frontier, who took over the Rams after mm. her husband died. Mm-hmm. So there was all that talk around, oh, she's not really, she only got it because she was the wife. So there was all of that that they threw on top. I love that they make her a Las Vegas show, but that's just brilliant. Because yeah. immediately you're just, because it's not a, it's not a hooker or a person. Like they're, do, they're in the 80s, they're like cross, they're like uh, compromising on between the two. So you find her and it works so well. Uh, but she's so in command of everything that she's doing. And this has happened numerous times in sports. Uh, in the 90s, uh, early 90s, the Minnesota Twins owner tried, had signed a contract for the new stadium. And in the stadium, it had said, if they recap, like, I think 1.4 million, less than 1.4 million for three years in a row, they can move to Tampa Bay. So he cast off all the stars and started bringing in rookies and old players. And so he was trying to do the same thing before a, a set of bankers came in in the third year and bought the team out from under him. Uh, and they did move to Tampa. They stayed in Minnesota. So, And that's just one example. There have been many owners who have tried to uh, move teams. I mean, Art Modell moving the Browns, that's legendary as hell. So it happens all the time. Yeah, it's, I remember how, how many times have the Raiders moved in my lifetime, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, the, th- the thought that occurred to me is this idea that, oh, this 
this showgirl, how is she qualified to own a baseball team? And I went, wait, what are the qualifications for owning a baseball team other than being rich? Yeah, like, exactly. How many people have we seen buy a baseball team or a football team or whatever and, and, and not know anything? Like, yeah. what, is it, what are the required uh, qualifications to own a sports team? Yeah. Um, but it's such a new concept for people who aren't in the, the, that don't realize that sports is a business. And like when you're young and like you're a teenager and you're watching this movie and that like it, it blows your mind of like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, it makes her even more of a villain that you really love to hate her because you're like, you couldn't even believe that someone would, right. who owns a team would want them to lose. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> not why you get into sports. That's not why you buy a team. Right. <laughs> what is this? The producers? I don't yeah. want it to fail. <laughs> um, let's cut to a motel in Mexico. The beautiful La Casa <laughs> del Campo. Yeah. Apparently there was a whole sequence of him playing on a Mexican baseball team that they shot and cut out of the movie. Mm. Uh, and I think this is just so much more efficient. <laughs> First of all, the staging of him exactly how he is in bed <laughs> with this girl <laughs> wearing the sombrero. Uh, yeah. Hello, Jake. This is Charlie Donovan, the new GM of the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. We'd love for you to come to spring training for a shot at this year's club. Is that you, Talbert? What? This is very funny, you know. I'm hungover. My knees are killing me, and if you're going to pull this shit, at least you could have said you were from the Yankees. <laughs> and he hangs up. Can I take a second to talk about how hot I thought Tom Barrett <laughs> Yes, please. By all means. I find him so... He, to me, is like the hottest version of what a baseball player in a uniform looks like who's like tanned face sort of leathery faced worn a little bit older like the backbone of the team he's just so incredibly hot <laughs> he's so good looking in this movie and then and then uh, later you'll get to it but when they do the american express commercial oh yeah he's like in a tux or whatever i'm like yeah no not hot not hot anymore. <laughs> it's like really? gotta be like dirty baseball like what about in the what about in the Miami Vice uh, jackets and the yeah no not into that <laughs> but he's wearing the the uniform and he's got like the longer uh, hair that curls up in the back with the hat yeah. there's like he's just like the what I picture uh, good looking times <laughs> certainly a lot of them look like that in the eighties so yeah, yeah that makes sense yeah. they were they look just like that. Not a lot of chiseled people in the eighties. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go off off to Tire World and meet uh, Lou. Oh. Tire World. Hello, Lou. This is Charlie Donovan of the Cleveland Indians. How would you like to manage the Indians this year? I don't know. So good, James so Gammon, so good. who we just talked about in Silverado. Yeah, yeah. He has one of the greatest voices of all time in movies. Yeah. I, you got to do a lot of living to get a voice like that, by the way. That doesn't that doesn't come natural. Let me think it over, will you, Charlie? I got a guy on the other line about some white walls. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I just love when Charlie's like, what's there to think over? It's managing the Cleveland Indians. Uh, I got another guy on, this on the line. It's just brilliant how, like, lackadaisical he is about the whole situation. But it also shows you, like, it's Cleveland. Like, it's managing the Cleveland Indians. I don't know. This seems more secure, the tired job I've got here. <laughs> uh, well, I think, too, it's sort of his... He doesn't take things seriously in the way that people expect him to take serious things seriously. Right. And he actually ends up being a great manager. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, we head off to Charlie Sheen. 
you know, this is right after Platoon and Wall Street. He, other than the brief appearance in Ferris Bueller Day, Day, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's a serious actor at mm-hmm. this time. And so for him to do a comedy was a stretch. And here's how they got cast is because he had been in Platoon with Tom Berenger and they both got offered these parts. And it sounded like they called each other up and was like, um, I don't know. I'll do it if you do it. Well, I'll do it if you do it. And it finally was just like they had had such an intense experience with Oliver Stone, you know, in the jungle making that movie that they just yeah. went, well, this sounds like fun. <laughs> so that's how that's how they end up doing it. Charlie Sheen hated the haircut at first, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just despised it, but came to love it by the time the movie had come out. Rick, we heard about your pitching out of Boardman last year. I'm not really with them anymore. Well, we'd still like to take a look at you at our spring camp in Arizona, March the 1st. Well, I'm not sure I can make it by then. <laughs> and we see that he's in jail. <laughs> it's great, quick introductions of characters. Yep, yep. Because you get you get the old Barringer who's like lying there and you know he's just like oh who it's Holbert you know he's just got that kind of vibe to him and then you've got the the juxtaposition of the young kid you know Charlie and the trouble that he's in mm-hmm. uh, but you get the vibe you get the vibe all across the board with all these guys as as we keep going yeah we arrive at spring training which they really did shoot in Tucson uh, Barringer arrives in the outfit that Kay has disrespected and feels that he's not attractive <laughs> in. Um, and what we hear is that he used to be a big star, that he was, you know, an all-star playing for Boston. Yeah, wound up in the Mexican League. Had some problems with his knees. We had him two years ago. We did. And then we meet Serrano, Dennis Haysbert. Which, Who was an unknown, complete unknown. Yeah, complete unknown. Well, And I didn't, you know, I remember watching 24 and going, oh, this guy playing the president. He's so, I had no idea it was the same person for years. <laughs> Um, he is so funny in this part and so great. Oh, just real quick with the Tom Berenger one. Uh, that's supposedly based on, uh, um, Carlton Fisk who had played for the Red Sox oh, yeah. and the White, White Sox. Sox. Yeah. Yep. And he'd played for a number of years. He was one of these catchers that like played for like 17 years or something. So he found a way. And so the, the reference to him being an all-star in uh, Boston, that's kind of a Carlton Fisk homage throwing that line in. And Serrano is based on a player that played back in the 70s uh, and also uh, one of the Yankees who used to eat uh, a chicken before a game. Like it was just, it was a, a thing. You had to have a whole chicken before the game. It was a thing for him. So that was, that's how they uh, weave that in with Serrano. I eat a suckling pig before every episode of the Cinephiles. <laughs> What's a suckling pig? For God's it's sakes. a baby pig. Oh, okay. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> you know when you go through like the Rolodex in your mind of it for a joke? You're like, no, no, no. I'm going to go with that weird one. weird is you shoot, you you record 400 episodes a year. <laughs> I've put on uh, a lot of weight since doing this podcast. Yeah, a lot of pics. <laughs> a lot of pics. <laughs> um, and of course, the joke we get with him is... Affected from Cuba. Wanted religious freedom. What's his religion? Voodoo. 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 By the way, can't speak Spanish to save his life. Uh, at first, when I was watching this time, I was like, wow, he really can't speak Spanish, but he affected <laughs> from Cuba. All right. Well, and the, his accent is so... Just, they took some liberties. They took some liberties. <laughs> it's not offensive because I love the movie, but I was just like listening to him speak Spanish. I was like, hey, okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, and up shows, George shows up in a ridiculous fancy car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Corbin Burnson, such an 80s actor yeah. who I love. I think On the high of L.A. law, though, right? Yeah. So like yep. he was 
he was doing that TV movie crossover when no one else was doing it. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of the high-priced free agent-ish guy. And then up comes a uh, Volkswagen bug converted with like a Rolls Royce hood. And we meet (laughs) Willie Mays Hayes. Apparently this was real. These bugs that had the Rolls Royce front and back were real cars. And eventually Rolls Royce sued the people who were doing it. There was like a manufacturer that was doing it. And they sued them. Yeah, because uh, it had become so popular that it was now affecting the the image of Rolls-Royce that you could attach it to a VW Beetle. So they sued them uh, a little bit after that. So, and this is Snipes' first role, first real role. You want to know what movie he turned down to do this? Do the Right Thing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Spike's movie. Really? And... I mean, mm. he goes on and works with Spike Lee a little later on. Sure, sure. Um, Double fever, yeah. Um, and that's such a weird. I think "Do the Right Thing" is an amazing movie, and so it's such a strange. Like, I don't know. I don't know which one makes sense. I mean, I love Major League, and he's great in it. Say hey, Billy Mays Hayes here. Play like Mays, and I run like Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't know who he is. Yeah, he, he wasn't invited to this spring training. And he's just got such great attitude right off the bat. Oh, and uh, don't you guys go anywhere. Plan to put on a hitting display. And then we get right into Charlie Sheen's arrival on the back of a motorcycle (laughs) with a garbage bag over his shoulder. Uh, And by the way, him winging the graying handkerchief, that was the cue for the motorcycle to come up. So when he's doing that as he's driving away, yeah, that's the cue they'd set up so that uh, the motorcycle would know the timing of it. Every intro to every character they just nail. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're so fast. Like, that's the other great thing is it's great screenwriting efficiency in terms of we got a 20-second moment here and a 30-second moment here, and we get who these people are. <laughs> my kind of team, Charlie. It's my kind of team. <laughs> <laughs> um, we head off to the locker room. Um, this is actually shot in Milwaukee, and one of the problems they had was Charlie Sheen only had five weeks. So a lot of the schedule was really built around – getting all the Charlie Sheen stuff knocked out and then they could shoot like kind of the rest of the film. Um, and we meet uh, Harris who's uh, what's his name? Chelsea, uh, Chelsea Ross. I mean, got to give Chelsea Ross some love. If Chelsea Ross is in your sports movie, odds are that it's going to be successful. He was in Rudy. He's in Hoosiers yeah. and he's in this Chelsea Ross is great. He, he plays such a great character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Sheen enters and Dorn makes some jokes. Whoa. Now the freak show candidate. How do you cut your hair, Rook? Vegematic? What the hell league you been playing in? California Penal. Never heard of it. Well, how'd you end up playing there? Stole a car. <laughs> I mean, in, in that Ferris Bueller kind of way where he's he's also like the scene he has, he's in, you know, on a bench in, in Ferris Bueller at a police station. I think that like him playing the bad boy, it's like that's when he's in the pocket, right? Like mm-hmm. he's right. <laughs> Like and when he was young, it's like felt totally okay and great. And then as he's gotten older, it's like you see the repercussions of this these sort of maybe poor choices when he was younger. But that's when you like loved him and you were on, so on yeah. board with him. And then I, I'm sure you guys know this, but like he admitted he took steroids for two yeah. months so that he could throw uh, to throw a fastball yeah. at like 85 miles or high 80s or whatever he was throwing it at the time. But like that, like you just accepted that from him, right? Like you just accept. So like him being like. A character from prison. I mean, it's like great of David to have written. I mean, it's great casting. It's just yeah. really great casting across the board. Well, and I think what Charlie Sheen does 
you know, whatever happened in, you know, later on in life, the way he plays this part is so interesting and so funny. And it has this weird mix of sweet and not too bright and kind of a straightforward thinker, you know? Yeah. Like he's playing it like a drama, you know, he's playing it with all mm. the seriousness and, um, uh, and, and great yeah. comic timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Serrano sees Doran's golf bag. Hey, big guy, you a golfer? <laughs> and the beautiful, what are they called? The thing you put on the head of a golf club. They have a, I'm sure they have a name. Hats for bats. <laughs> <laughs> that apparently uh, uh, Dennis Haysbert made up. That was a joke he made up. Oh, that's funny. Um, and he just kind of takes one of them and puts it on his bat and walks away. <laughs> gives um, him that look, gives Corbin Burnson that look. But like you said, Steve, like screenwriting, right? You're already establishing these relationships and the possible uh, rival relationships that will happen just from the Charlie Sheen. And this is standard stuff where the veteran rides the rookie as he comes in and, you know, calls him all kinds of names. That's how it was done. It probably is still to an extent uh, nowadays, but certainly was definitely in the 80s. And then you're you're already establishing this young kid against the older veteran, which is going to play out through the whole movie, you know, just brilliant kind of laying the groundwork for what you're going to see. And no one messing with Serrano, not even Corbin Burnson. (laughs) <laughs> we we talked a lot uh, when we did Silverado about plants and payoffs. We talked mm-hmm. a lot about plants and payoffs in both Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. And the same thing is happening here, which is we're planting Dorn and Vaughn, and that's going to go on a long time. We're planting Harris and Serrano. Yeah, that's right. going to go on through the whole movie. We're planting uh, things like Jake's knees, you know, mm-hmm. and that's going to go on through the whole movie. Yeah, and they're yeah. and 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 like all good plants, none of them draw attention to themselves. They all just seem like a fun moment while it's happening and you don't think about it. So you don't notice that these things are being set up to be delivered on later in the film. Um, And then it's the middle of the night. All the guys are on their bunks. (laughs) Some security guys come in, (laughs) lift Wesley Snipes top bunk off the bed and carry him outside. (laughs) He is a very sound sleeper. (laughs) And And perfect case sleeping in a nice, like two piece (laughs) pajamas. Listen, he's got class. He does. Definitely. (laughs) Um, and next morning, and it's their first kind of practice, and they're doing wind sprints, and Wesley wakes up in the parking lot. Shit! I've been caught already? <laughs> and we see two guys racing. He runs up behind them, and in beautiful slow motion, blasts past these guys in the wind sprint. Get him a uniform. <laughs> By the way, David Ward said in an interview that Wesley was not that fast of a runner, which is why every time you see him run, it's in slow motion. Yeah. To make it look like he was yeah. fast. Apparently, apparently, Dennis Haysbert was way faster than Wesley. Yeah, <laughs> you know, this huge guy just blasts away. Yeah. The other thing David Ward said though was that he looked really good running. Yes, is he that does. he looks so in slow motion? It's like wow, this guy mm-hmm. is fast. He's got but a sprinter's really, body for sure. Yeah, yeah. and the um, permanent look. By the way, he is a fantastic body in this film. I mean, just every time he's got his shirt off, I was like, damn, Wesley. I mean, this is pre long before Blade and all that other stuff. Yeah. He looks good. Maybe that was his decision making. Maybe he was like between do the right thing and major league. He's like, I've been I've been working out. (laughs) I got a body. You know what? I I totally forgotten. I forgot that he's in Michael Jackson's bad. Yes. I had no memory. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And now we got uh, Jake, Tom Berenger, doing some catching, and Lou's kind of asking him some questions about his mobility, about his knees. I need a catcher, Jake. Somebody who can lead this team on the field. I want the absolute truth here. Are you 100%? 
Yeah, when I bullshit you about something like that. You better. You want to make this team. (laughs) (laughs) And then he has the moment where he's got to prove it, and he yells second base and tries to make that throw. Not a good throw. Apparently, Tom Berenger couldn't make that throw either. The, the coming out of the stance, making the throw to second is not easy. And he had real, real problems doing it. it isn't. <laughs> um, these guys, by the way, they had about two weeks of baseball boot camp. It, to varying degrees of success, it sounds like. Wesley Snipes had played almost no baseball. Almost no <laughs> baseball experience at all. And he's up to the plate and he does a little bat flip. That does not go well. Digs his feet in. Foul tip. And another. And another. Um, and what they said is that for a guy who didn't play baseball, and this is what's weird in these movies, is he had a consciously hit foul tip after foul tip. Hmm. That's hard to hit the ball wrong correctly right. over and over and over again. Yeah. Two weeks is not a long time. No. <laughs> no, I mean, we've done other, like we just did, um, we just did 300 where it was like two months of martial arts training. Yeah. When we did The Matrix, it was six months of martial arts training. Yeah. You know, most of these movies, you know, it's at least three weeks or a month to, you know, to develop any kind of a skill at anything. Yeah. yeah. And, and baseball is a particularly weird sport if you haven't really played it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, um, I mean, you're, you're technically failing. If you're failing, you're doing amazing at hitting, right? Like you yeah. one out of three or four times. Yeah. <laughs> Like if you hit three hundred, you're yeah, you're, a you're great. Hitter. You're yeah. considered great, yeah. Well, and that that three hundred, you might have had you know five six pitches or seven or eight pitches yeah. that 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 you fouled off that were balls that were strikes. So really, it's a very very low number. Like you know, mm-hmm. one out of ten do you hit? Yeah. You know, there's those things where like, okay, you played volleyball, and I'm sure you can tell if someone can set the ball. Like setting the ball is not a that is not an easy skill. To gain, like you can't possibly gain that, and I and I'm not a huge baseball person, but I am sure you can look at these swings, or look at the pitching and go, hmm, maybe not so much, you know, if, if you're an expert at it. Well, you may run like maze, but you hit like shit. With your speed, you should hit the ball on the ground and be legging them out. Every time I see you hit one in the air, you owe me twenty push-ups. <laughs> no problem. And again, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna have another moment with each of these characters advancing their stories a little bit, and now we go to uh, Ricky Vaughn on the mound with the cutoff <laughs> baseball sleeves and no hat. We wear sleeves and hats in, in this uh, league, son. <laughs> and I love they stand him and the other coach whose name I don't remember stand next to the catcher, mm-hmm. and uh, and he throws his first pitch, very wild and very fast. <laughs> Yeah. And I love they did. Neither of them are scared, <laughs> precisely. Nice velocity. Sounded like it. Jesus. How much? 96. Better teach this kid some control before he kills somebody. <laughs> and uh, uh, the way they shot that is they had a batting, they had a pitching machine shoot mm. the ball into that thing because they cut from the pitch into the shot of right. the things shattering so they said because apparently charlie could not find that location that well and they moved the pitching mound 10 feet forward and shot from behind the catcher so it made it seem like you could get it over the plate uh at that speed that's a that's a brilliant one moving the pitching mound yeah you know and as long as the lens is you know a, a longer lens that compresses spacesuits no way you can tell yep how far that is 
Uh, Dorn is not going down for a ball. And so it's Lou takes the sort of the same tactic. Every time you do that, you owe me 40 sit-ups for every time you take one off the hips. Um, by the way, apparently Corbin Burnson refused to wear a cup because he felt it didn't look good. What? Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly, he only wanted to wear a cup during LA Law. Like, <laughs> very strange. Because he felt like in pants, in pantsuits, it looked so much better. Yeah. And to be fair, Harry Hamlin was a noted ball puncher. So you, know, you, you got to wear the cup. You got to wear the cup. I literally was trying to come up with another cast member in L.A. Law to make a joke, and I couldn't come up with a name. Susan Day, Alan Rankin. So there you so go. There's a lot. Broca's got them all. I know. <laughs> I love that show. Are you kidding? A That's Latino what... lawyer? What? I love that show. Oh, right. Jimmy Smith's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great show. That was a big deal in my house. I'm sure. Um and now we get to Serrano. So we checked in. We checked in with uh, Willie Hayes. We checked in with Vaughn. We checked in with Jake and now and with Dorn. And now we have a Serrano moment where he is just tagging the ball, knocking home run after home run. Jesus, this guy hits a ton. How come nobody else picked up on him? Okay, Eddie, that's enough fastballs. Throw him some breaking balls. Hey! Oh. Oh! <laughs> so now we've established what his basic character flaw is that he's going to have to address. Cannot hit the curveball. It's a great example of simplicity, right? Simplicity with every character in terms of what is their flaw, what is their their worldview, what is their comedic quirk. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, that you can just be really simple and say, like, oh, he's amazing at this, but he can't hit a curveball or a breaker ball, whatever, it, you know, yeah. that it, it feels like, you know, when you when you sit down to write a movie, you're just like, I feel like a lot of writers overthink it and just get really complicated with things. And you just, this is a great example of simplicity. Yeah. Well, there's so many things that with my students where they, they write a scene. And the first thing I was like, well, there's nothing there. Like you just wrote a scene because you felt you needed a scene and you maybe established one plot point, but the characters aren't interesting at all. So it's like, these characters have to have something and then they'll come back and they'll overwrite the scene. So there'll just be tons and tons of stuff. And I'm like, Okay, you found a thing. Now you have to take, but you can't spend three pages establishing that thing. You don't have time. So now you have to figure out how to distill it down to three sentences, mm-hmm. which this movie does perfectly. This guy hits a ton. Why hasn't anyone picked him up? Throw him a curveball. Oh, there it is. We figured it out. It's super, super clear. About those sit ups you want me to do? I got it right here in my contract. It says I don't have to do any calisthenics. I don't feel unnecessary. So what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Hands it off to Lou. Drops the contract on the ground. You know what just occurred to me? In our last film, we had the long sound of a man urinating that we did with UK. And in this film, we also have the sound of a man urinating. I don't know if that's something that you're just drawn to. I mean, I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> Remind me, who's doing the urinating? Tom Hanks pees forever in the no, locker room. No, no, no. Tom Hanks, I know, but oh. in this movie? Oh, Lou, Lou pees on the contract. Yeah, the, oh, right. oh, the manager. The yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Here's another um, year contract, Dorn. Oh, right, 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 yeah. The way I played today, I wouldn't be surprised if they red-tagged me already. What do you mean? You get a red tag in your locker, means the manager wants to see you because you just died and went down to the minors. I have no idea if this is actually true. My guess is this is not how you cut people from a major league team. I think it was true back then. Mm. I think it's different now. But I think, and I think, I don't think it was a red tag. I think it was another color. 
that they had, but they used red because of the symbolism of red. Um, and but no, but they haven't been cut yet. And then uh, Harris uh, Vaughn talks to him, asks him about what all that shit is on his chest, and he gives the long list of lubricants: it's Crisco, Vagisil, Vagisil, and put that, a jalapeno in my nose. It's like you throw snot balls. I haven't got an arm like yours. I got to put anything on it I can find. Someday you will too. And he is based on Gaylord Perry, who was known oh. for that stuff in the seventies. Yeah, that's so. Well, this is the thing I've heard is that apparently David Ward really, really knew his baseball, mm. and, and and that people, players who watch this, I have heard multiple players interview baseball players who say this is the most realistic movie about baseball. You know that it's not the natural, it's not eight men out. Bull Durham, a lot of people also say is one of the more realistic ones, but this one is just like these characters in the locker room are just so true to you know people that they have known. It's jocks. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah, it's jocks. And when you get later on in the movie, when people are talking about your wife or your mom or whatever, or like sleeping with so-and-so like that, I can imagine baseball players watching this and going, yes, this is the most realistic version. Of <laughs> let's, let's meet Jobo. Jobu? Jobu. Jobu. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I have a typo. Let me say that again. Let's meet Joe Boo. <laughs> I'm surprised a bat didn't hit you from behind. I know. It right. <laughs> How can well, you mess that up, Steve? Say it again. Say it again the correct way. Well, now I have to leave my bad pronunciation in. <laughs> so before, I was just going to cut it out, but now you made it something funny. You know, I have to keep it in. Joe Boo, ayúdame en este momento. Para que me des el poder. Para conquistar. There's a little altar to Jobu with a shot of rum. The <laughs> idol is perfect design. It's a great, great idol. The frazzle hair. This, by the way, is Dennis Haysbert's first day of shooting. <laughs> and he was super, super nervous. Um, and we kind of have the guys behind him as he's doing this scene with Jobu. And, uh, and his explanation is, That's the Aussie. I cannot hit third ball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curve ball. That's our friend. Again, the accent is totally bizarre. <laughs> it really is. It's not at all Cuban. But I love, I love straight ball. I hit it very much. <laughs> John, you're okay with the depiction of anything? It just feels like he's a character. Yeah, because they're making fun of everybody in the movie. Yeah, There's yeah. no one that's like, you know, uh, chill. Everyone gets made fun of in the movie for their perks. But Dennis doesn't, and, and the way they portray it, Dennis is not, he's because he has respect. It'd be different if they were making fun of him the whole time in the movie for that. But because he has respect in the clubhouse and he's a strong character no one messes with, you, you forgive it, you know, You've, and plus it's 89. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You forgive it It's it, for what it is. I don't think it would fly today at all. Oh, no, not at all. You cast a actual Latino guy today. Yeah. Well, and like the jungle music playing in the background every time wow. we cut to him, you know, yeah. that's like we're in but a that's weird voodoo. That's a voodoo reference, though, isn't I, it? It's it, not necessarily it total. That is exactly what it is. Yeah. You know, but I don't think we could do that today. Right. Well, like Long Duck Dong with the bong that you yeah. hear in, in 16 Candles. You could never get away with that now. Well, yeah. I, and I actually think we talked about it before, but I think the Long Duck Dong comparison is good because Long Duck Dong is actually a cool person yeah. in that film. Yep. But the treatment of it, the it is making racist jokes mm -hmm. about him. And the film is doing that. It's like Serrano is cool. He, like we really like Serrano and, yeah. and root for him. Mm -hmm. But part of the sense of humor is exoticizing the... Cuban voodoo weird shit, you know, right. right? Which I don't think we would do today. But that being said, 
1996, two Indians bought two Joe Boo statues and put them in their uh, locker and put uh, whatever it was, the rum. Uh, and they ended up uh, halting their losing streak and beating the Mariners that night, eight to nothing. And then they sacrificed a live chicken uh, to help a guy break his uh, uh, hitting slump. So there actually all they... sorts of things I'm not into in what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> but it's baseball players, so it all makes sense. Realistic, like you said. Did they really sacrifice a live chicken? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Gotta no, break this guy's streak. <laughs> um, well, that's what's so it's so weird to me that you take a thing that's a comedy and fictional and that that then become and there's several things in this that we're going to get to where have become normal baseball things because yeah. of this movie. Yeah, they um, created the culture as opposed to commenting on the culture. Right. Yeah. You know, you might think about taking Jesus Christ as your savior instead of fooling around with all this stuff. Shit, Harris. Ah, Jesus. I like him very much. But he no help. You're trying to say that Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? <laughs> I love that line. All right, Harris, let's not start a holy war. <laughs> well, again, we're planting this conflict that we're going to resolve. Yeah, yeah. And he even talks about, you know, shouldn't leave that rum line around. And and Serrano says, It's very bad to steal Joe Boo's rum. Now uh, Ricky Vaughn is doing some practicing. He's got the, the cutout figure of a batter. First shot right in the crotch. Jake is struggling with uh, fielding low balls. Serrano is striking out. Dorn takes balls to the chest. Vaughn takes the head off of that uh, cutout figure. <laughs> so all in all, I think the team is starting to play really, really well. <laughs> I love all the dents throughout that uh, cutout figure that it shows you. Like he's been hitting this batter multiple times. One of the things I really think about this, by the way, there is no way Vaughn is allowed to play in any league. <laughs> Guy who throws ninety-seven a mile an hour fastballs and just continually hits people. Well, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to this, you guys, and maybe I should hold off making this comment, but him getting glasses to fix the problem. Um, and again, I love this movie so much; mm. it's one of my favorites. It doesn't make sense, <laughs> like. <laughs> The the correction of vision, like he could see that there was a player where the player right. was. He knows where Jake is, where the catcher is. Yeah, he would just he has to change his arm. He has to change <laughs> his arm that has nothing to do with what glasses he's wearing. This so, is so funny. Yes, I love this movie so much. <laughs> kind of what called- I would say. Like, it, what, what I would say is sight will help you adjusting three or four inches of mis- yeah. You know what I mean? But not, <laughs> it's not like you're eight feet away from the plate. <laughs> Glasses don't help with that. And, um, and then I, I was realizing today in preparation for this, I was like, I've never needed glasses, but I, uh, I have a stigmatism mm-hmm. that in the last year has been like making my one eye super weak because it's been working overtime all these years. So I got glasses to uh, correct it, yeah. Uh, but I don't have like I have twenty twenty vision, but I got gra- glasses. And my glasses are the wild thing glasses. Really, <laughs> they look exactly like them. I know That's you awesome. for those listening, you won't be able to see, but I'm going to grab them while you're talking. That so <laughs> I have the wild thing glasses. Can, can while you look for them, can I ask you? A qu- I have a question for you, which yeah. is: Has your pitching improved since getting these glasses? <laughs> um, my pitching is. Uh, 
uh, uh, amazing, amazing <laughs> since getting the glasses. So maybe I was wrong to call them out. Oh, but those are the ones he ends up with. These right? are the ones he ends up with. You yeah. need the skull and crossbones bones on. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, well, it's, well, real quick, Steve, it's funny Kay says this because actually in the NFL, Jameis Winston, who, is the quarterback, who was the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year, he threw 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions. That was unheard. That's unheard of in the history of the NFL. Yet he had the third highest passing yardage of any quarterback in the league last year. And he said, because he threw so many interceptions, he had an uh, seeing issue, uh, stigma, or whatever it was going. On. So he got LASIK surgery, and now he thinks that's going to fix the interceptions. So it's it's not out of their own possibility, but I don't think it's. I I agree with Kay. I don't think it's true. I think it's mechanics. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with sight. Um, it, it's it's funny thinking about, and I don't want to. We don't need to do a huge digression, but mm. things that are satisfying in a movie are different from things that are real. It's like you need to satisfy. Oh, right, and the moment of him getting the glasses is so great in the movie mm-hmm. yeah. that we're like, that's okay. You know, yeah. um, we have our, our first like preseason game and everything that we expect to go wrong does. Wesley flies out, has to do push-ups. Vaughn's throwing wild, wild pitches. Serrano's striking out. Jake takes a huge collision at the plate where he loses the ball, which is important because we're going to see the opposite later on. Yeah. Uh, I love that, you know, the big thing that Wesley Snipes should be able to do is steal is steal bases and he makes a great run for it, slides just a few inches away. And I love that guy. Come on, come on. And he gets and he flips him off and gets cut. <laughs> That's so good. We've reached the final day of cuts. Everyone is scared. Um, and Jake, being the senior guy, you know, the, the leader says, Yeah, look, uh, whatever happens, you just keep it to yourselves until you get out of clubhouse. You don't want to celebrate in front of guys who just died. Yeah. But what if we're one of the deceased, huh? And Jake has his moment of opening the locker room. Come on, Jake. It's only your life. So apparently, as uh, Kay, as you know, on the movie set, movie sets can be really hot sometimes because you got a lot of lights and you can't blast the air conditioning. And Tom Berenger sweats a lot. Mm-hmm. And he was sweating a lot in this scene, like on every take. And they only had two shirts. So they would take a shirt off him, and then they would have to quickly, quickly dry it to get it back on him. And the only way to quickly dry a shirt is to hit it with a blow dryer. So the shirt they handed him was really hot. (laughs) Vicious cycle. I know, right? Um, Okay, is Tom sexier sweaty or uh, not sweaty in the baseball? Okay, that's a very good question. On the ball field, I thought that it's it's really cool when he's sweaty and it's very hot. When he's in the restaurant later, like I've saw, I, I went back to look at stuff like that, and it, I, it was one of the hottest summers ever yes. in uh, Ohio when they shot it. And um, or wait, was, were they was in they, Milwaukee? There's Milwaukee, Milwaukee. Right, in Milwaukee, and um, and there's like shots of him, like his face is really shiny and oily, you know, like when he sees uh, Rene Russo from yeah. across the way, and I, and I'm not, I'm not into it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to have a running commentary on Tom Berenger's relative hotness throughout the. You got I like it. it. I'm, I'm I like here it. to give. Good. Um, but he does not have a red tag in his locker. We see Serrano with a big snake and Wesley Snipes with a little snake. Just a good gag. <laughs> they don't have red tags. And then we have Vaughn. And I love Wesley Snipes' performance of opening the locker but not looking and then kind of slowly coming around. <laughs> 
and he heads outside and does a little dance. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we go uh, back inside. And the way this is shot is like this is a real director because we see the shot through the slats of the locker towards Ricky Vaughn. And then he opens the door and the corner of the red tag in the foreground out of focus is visible with his face in the background. That is a director having a concept for a shot and setting it up, you know, and while this isn't, you know, we're not, this isn't a Martin Scorsese film, this isn't a Kubrick film or Norson Wells film, there is a great attention to detail and that is one of them. And Vaughn is pissed and he storms into Lou's office and throws a chair and says, I got news for you, Mr. Brown. You haven't heard the last of me. You may think I'm shit now, but someday you're going to be sorry that you cut me. I'm going to catch you on somewhere else. And every time that I pitch against you, I'm going to stick it up your fucking ass. Throws the ball into a locker with a lot of rage. Mm-hmm. And Lou loves it. He says, <laughs> good. I like that kind of spirit in a player. The only problem is I didn't cut you. What? I think someone's been having some fun with you. Vaughn storms into the locker and tackles uh, Corbin Burnson, uh, and the, our players have to break it up. It's a good little fight. Mm-hmm. Hey, forget about doing it. You got other things to do. Like what? Like packing for Cleveland. It's the stadium. Jake is all alone, or so he thinks. Stands up to the plate. Says the thing that, I don't know. I know I've said this, John. I'm assuming that you've said this. Have you had this moment, Kay, of all alone, imagining you're winning the big championship game? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was with a different sport, but yeah, Mm. I definitely did this. I did it. I did it probably more football than I did it baseball, Mm. you know, of me catching the big touchdown pass. Um, Do you do this before you go pitch a movie, Kay? Like you're like, (sighs) I visualize it all. But I mean, (laughs) that idea of visualizing, like, you know, like winning the race. I mean, that was part of our training. Like when I ran track and stuff like that it was right you know in all honesty i would do it all the time for aikido stuff mm. particularly before belt test but but like i mean frankly that's frequently my counting sheep is if i can't sleep i'll lie in bed and i'll go through every single aikido technique in my head wow. and visualize the whole thing because it relaxes me for whatever crazy reason but i genuinely think i mean visualizing isn't exactly what jake's doing as he's, as he's hitting <laughs> his home run but vi- I am a hundred percent convinced that visualizing going through technique or your stuff helps. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. I will. I will say too, like when I dream or visualize like something that inspires me, a lot of times um, it, it's not even a sport that I play or something mm-hmm. that I actually do. You know, it's like a go-to for me for a lot of years was like um, ice skating mm, and wow. my. And, and like acting like I could do like visualizing, like I could do like the triple Lutz or something that no one else could do. I don't even know if I'm using the right terminology even, but like, Mm -hmm. I would just, you know, I would hear a song and I would like envision like what that would feel like and what that would look like. And like myself on the ice or whatever and doing it, which is kind of a weird thing, but I think it's maybe helpful to be like, uh, as I pitch different movies and different, like where it's like, I never did acapella, but I pitched an acapella movie. <laughs> like, so you, have, you have to like be able to envision yourself doing something you've never done before. Maybe that's a helpful exercise. But I think it's, it's I know this is a digression, but I think this is totally part of the creative process. There are so many times. I mean, I can't really stop my brain from imagining scenarios, you know, that I will go through and some of them ridiculous or embarrassing or silly or violent or scary of like what would happen if blank 
Mm-hmm. You know, like I frequently walked into a bank and checked out the cameras and wondered how I'd rob it. Not because I want to rob a bank, but because I just think about scenarios, you know, and, and every once in a while, like you go through a mental process and you go, oh, that's a story. Like mm-hmm. I need to pursue that. Like the, the very first play I wrote was I had a girlfriend. I broke up with a girlfriend, my first girlfriend, and she two th- this is a depressing story so maybe i'll cut this whole thing out but okay. but uh two things happened at the same time uh one is there was a guy who died in my high school and he had choked to death is what i had heard and that what i later found out was that he had actually killed himself and that his he had hung himself oh. and his parents had lied about this and then uh i had broken up with this girlfriend and she in a big upset like don't you love me anymore she called me she's like i'm just gonna kill myself and i was like Oh, my God. You know, and she didn't mean it. It was a thing that she said. But it scared me enough that I I called her mom and said, look, Christine just said this to me. I don't know what it means, but I I, I don't think she means it. But, uh, you know, it's serious. And and then I was and nothing happened with that, of course. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about, well, how would I feel if she had killed herself? And then I started thinking about, well, what if her parents did what this happened with this twin? And that was my first play was that a girl had broken up with some, or a guy had broken up with a girl, the girl killed herself, the parents lied about it, and now we're in this room where all these people are together and this lie comes out. That was the first play I ever wrote, and it was because of just the weird what-ifs that went through my head. And I think so much, at least for me, of stories I've come up with have come from, you know, like the assistance, you know, the movie I made is... I had friends who were personal assistants, and I had heard a lot of stories from them about what life was like. And then I had this uh, realization, like, oh, my God, these people actually have so much power. And then I thought, well, what if they use that power? And that's where that movie comes from, you know. Uh, So, like, the, you know, I know this is a digression, but the imagining of stuff, that's just inherent to the creative process, I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you, you basically, your first play was Dear Evan Hansen? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I was me just going to say that, son. I was going to say that. talking about the assistants. I can't get in there. Shit. That's true. I've learned his gaps. I've learned his gaps, Kay, right now. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Dear Evan Hansen is a lot better than my first play. <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> Uh, but Jake does imagine his entire home run hitting. And, of course, uh, Willie Hayes and Vaughn are there. And they head off to this restaurant. It is fancy. <laughs> Vaughn, Vaughn's outfit is amazing. That's brilliant. Particularly the tie. And he says, I look like a banker in this. <laughs> and you can see that Jake is trying to guide these people into a more affluent lifestyle um, at this French restaurant and in the midst of some jokes about what they were going to order and swishing champagne in his mouth, Jake sees someone and Vaughn, the first evidence that his vision is bad is squinting to see who he sees. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah. And, and shit. Yeah. No, they Good they points. Up, I never caught that. It just, oh, wow. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and there is Renee Russo and this is her first film. It's my wife. <laughs> Does she know that? I mean, uh, she would have been if I hadn't messed it up. Who's that guy she's with? I will never forget this scene, by the way. I have always remembered this scene. This scene really stuck with me. Why? What about it is that so... I think because this is such a male... Like, back when I was younger and stuff like that, this is obviously just... It's a baseball team. It's all men. And I was coming from a perspective of, like, um, the woman or whatever. And Mm. so, like, when he says that to my wife... or He does the mislead of, like, that's my wife and and she's with another man them setting up 
the romantic uh, storyline is was that they I connected to all the sports stuff for sure, hundred percent. But like, I'll never forget like that, that it started to get into this like personal side of this character that I obviously thought was really hot. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it's always stuck with me. It's always stuck with me. And, and I was like, Oh, that's the start. Like what an interesting way to start. Uh, it says a lot in that moment of his, it, it's not his wife anymore. Obviously mm-hmm. he's moved on, but they have this history. We have this song. The way he looks at her is like, he's still obviously in love with her with the yeah. way he looks at her. Yeah. So you're, you're just saying so much about the relationship in such a small period of time. Um, which is kind of Steve, what you've been talking about the, the whole movie so far of just like they did just such a great job of telling a lot of story in a very short period of time where you just get it. The thing I kept thinking watching it this time is that in this Jake Lynn relationship, the line between romance and stalker is very thin and, and the behavior like it sounds like he was fairly horrible to her. Yes. In their previous relationship, as we're going to find out later. And some of the things that he does there, like, I think what the movie is saying is that he has matured and the movie is saying that this is the right relationship. And that's and that's what the movie is. And that's correct. But looking at it, part of me is going, Lynn, don't do this. Oh, I know. <laughs> this, is, this is a mistake. You're with someone who cares about you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's it's funny, too, because isn't this the guy who was drunk in Mexico with a sombrero yes. on his head? Yeah. Like, and all of a sudden he's trying to school them about what to do in a French restaurant. And he's the one talking. So I'm like, wait, has he matured? Has yeah. he matured? This is the thing. <laughs> and it apparently has no problem breaking and entering into multiple uh, <laughs> um, apartments in the course of this film. But right now, there's a f- phone call for Renee Russo's character. She gets up, and it's Jake on the phone calling him for 10 <laughs> feet away, which is a funny, funny bit. How'd you know I was here? Uh, just a hunch. I took you there when you got your master's degree, remember? I figured you're wearing that black dress with a red sash how'd you know that i didn't even have this dress this is the first scene renee russo shot in her first movie she was very very nervous and like a lot of actors when they're nervous and and relatively inexperienced she didn't know what to do with her hands <laughs> and so and, and 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 hands get really in the way you want some, a certain amount of stillness in the shot because it makes it harder to cut it could be distracting and so finally the director literally tied her arms down no way yes it did two rehearsals with her arms tied up and then untied her to shoot the scene the next time wow oh my gosh i've just had to say hey stop moving your hands like that (laughs) Um, i think he did that first (laughs) you still just couldn't do it huh just couldn't do it well, that's stop moving your hands like that what are you talking about i don't know if that would fly these days either i know (laughs) Um, um uh, yeah. But here, here's something like is attention to detail because she was a librarian, correct? Yes. 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 She's a librarian. Lynn was. And um, I don't know if you guys noticed when her car drives away, her license plate says read. <laughs> That's awesome. That's some uh, David's attention to detail there. I thought uh, was pretty, pretty awesome. I never forgot that. I was like, her license plate says read. on it. What are you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be in Mexico somewhere? Well, I'm playing with the Indians again. Back in the bigs. Well, that's great. That's that's great. I think I'm happy for you. By the way, this is a real quick plant, too, way earlier in the movie, which just occurred as we're talking about it. And maybe you guys already knew this. But like they said, we should have had him two years ago. We did. 
So right. maybe this is where this is obviously oh. the time when him and Lynn had been together when they had him two years ago on the Cleveland Indians. Uh, I so, think you're totally right. Right. And so maybe she moved there with him and then he pulled the whole thing that he pulled with the surprise party and all the paternity. all guys, And then when they kicked him out, he left and she left, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, Real small plant, but it's there. No, it's a really well. I mean, this dude wrote the Sting. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, Good the point. Sting is a, not a simple screenplay at all. It is extremely yeah. complicated. That's the so, gift of this movie. You think it's like a small throwaway, fun sports movie, but there's actually a lot more going on here than people actually think on first look. There's so much more happening. Yeah, and you know, I'll say this over and over again. I mean, it is is so much harder to do a comedy than it is to do a drama. It really is, and the fact that he does it so well. Mm-hmm. This this known formulaic structure of a sports underdog movie, but is done again so well in the same way that Rocky, you know, all those mm-hmm. great underdog movies are done. And then like the the actual baseball sequences are shot so well and are yeah. so advanced. And like, you know, like there's like images that I haven't forgotten that make you feel like you're there. And, and that idea of like, and you know, I'm, I'm from Illinois. So like the Cubs hadn't won when I watched this movie, right, the, right. you know, like, yeah, um, I was thinking about that. The, the, the bulls hadn't won yet. You know, the bears had won four years earlier, but it's, but we just, we needed that. Like you needed that, that boost mm-hmm. of like that, you know, that wish fulfillment. Yeah. It, I, it, I think he does. I, I it's like, it's frustrating as a filmmaker who does like, like, you know, like blockers, for example, like people just can really dismiss it as like raunchy, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like we tried to do a lot of really interesting things within yeah. a comedy and it's just not, it's just not easy to do it. And the fact that he had catch, he has, catch, David has catchphrases and mm-hmm. things that we'll never forget yeah. is yeah. like, it's just beyond impressive. Yeah. It, it really is. And he also taps into, which, you know, you were just speaking to, like I, I, I'm fairly certain I'm the least big sports fan of the three of us. Hmm. Um, you know, I like sports to some degree, but I'm not a regular watcher except Cal football. So I watch Cal football and occasionally Cal basketball, and that has been being the fan of a team that never quite wins in much for my entire life. And so the the feeling of the Indians, you know, or of the Cubs up until very recently, or you know, of the, the to be the fan of the team that. Oh, maybe this is going to be the year they look pretty good. No, it's not going to happen yeah. this year. Right. Like, there's such a, I think that and relates to life so much. Most teams, whether it's a local mm. level, a college level, a high school level, whatever, da, 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 most teams lose. Most yeah. teams are losing, have losing streaks. So, that idea of like feeling like uh, in connection with like a team that has lost a lot, that that's a feel, it's a pretty universal feeling, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a, there's also a reason why the main nemesis to this team is the Yankees, right? Which is the team where that is not the case, you know. Um, it, and it was the, when I was cheering for them. It was when I was cheering for them <laughs> all through the '80s and ni- uh, until Jeter showed up. It was a barren wasteland of, uh-huh. of bad losing seasons uh, for the Yanks. How long was that wasteland of losing seasons? It was at least 15 years. Maybe really? Is longer. it that long? <laughs> Listen. Wow. I, Listen, when, you're a kid girl- has, when, when you have a winning team, you just can't even imagine yeah. how long it took for them to start to be a winning team. Well, that's the reverse because I was a Redskins fan when they started winning all those Super Bowls. Like I was eight years old, nine years old when I became a Redskins fan. Then they won all those Super Bowls and I thought it was never going to end. And we've had nothing 
since 1991 where we've uh -huh. even remotely come close. So it's been a weird kind of thing in reverse where now I understand what it's like to be a long-suffering fandom, you know, or for soccer with Liverpool, they haven't won a game, they haven't won a title in 30 years. And the one year, they're 25 points ahead this year. It was going to break it. They can't, they, uh, they postpone the season. Who knows if it'll come back. And like, even if they give us the title without playing games, it'll have an asterisk. So it's not even yeah. a full victory. So that's the super frustrating part of sports. I genuinely think that what drives us to sports is the disappointment. You know, on some level, because because that's what makes the moment of victory so sweet. True. You know what I mean? True. Like just watching a totally dominant team actually gets old to some degree. Mm -hmm. But when you have the underdog team like we have in this film, that is thrilling. Yeah. yeah. But at this moment, as we go into our first game, <laughs> it's not going to go so well. We have some setup in the locker room, um, <laughs> which ends with uh Serrano's explosion going off and the fire extinguisher going <laughs> in the middle of uh, Harris's prayer. And then uh, we get to finally see Bob Euchre. Hello again, everybody. Harry Doyle here welcoming all you friends of the feather to another season of Indians baseball. He's so good. Everything he says is so good. Apparently a lot of improv because um, this was just him. Just a reminder, fans, about Die Hard Night coming up here at the stadium. Free admission to anyone who was actually alive the last time the Indians won a pennant. <laughs> it's all good stuff. Uh, Willie Mays Hayes makes a Willie Mays catch. Nice catch, Hayes. Don't ever fucking do it again. <laughs> One of the things uh, David Ward says he would change is there's too many F-bombs, he thinks, oh. in the film. Really? Yeah. I don't are... think so, but I like that word a lot. Well, these yeah, are pro athletes. It would sort of feel not as um, authentic, right? Yeah, I agree. that's what I think. Oh, wait, look at that Last Dance documentary. You haven't watched it, Steve. There's F-bombs all over that oh, thing yeah. in Last Dance documentary. Well, this is the thing. People swear a lot Yeah, <laughs> in sports. I didn't, to be honest with you, I until you just said that, I didn't even realize there were that mm. many in that movie. That movie feel, and maybe it's because I, whenever I watch it, it's like on cable or something like that. And, <laughs> They've gotten rid of some of them or something. Yeah. Well, I, th I thought there was a lot of frickins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not. It's a I, lot. Uh, David, you wrote too many frickins in this movie. Well, this is the weird thing about the film. And, and, and it's funny now having a kid who I've introduced to some movies that have a lot of is personally, I have no problem with swearing. Like what I have a problem with and that I can't I'm struggling to teach my kid is that there are appropriate times to use it and not appropriate times to use it. And he is an eight year old. Most of the times are not appropriate. <laughs> um, but I don't have a problem with the words. And what's weird about this movie, I think it's a totally wholesome film mm -hmm. almost entirely. You know, there are movies that are way more disturbing or dark that don't have the, you know, the word fuck in them yeah. that I would never let my child watch. You know, um, I didn't we didn't have him watch this. I thought about it, but it was just there are certain things, particularly like the um, the cutout of taking the articles of clothing off of yeah. the boss where I was like, I don't need to explain that to my son. Uh, Hayes uh, at his first up at bat, he <laughs> makes an accidental bunt, but manages to to run it out. We we see for the first time our diehard Indian fans with their drums, <laughs> totally surrounded by empty stands. Um, and then uh, we meet uh, Pete Vukovic, who is Haywood, the yeah. uh, Yankees' big hitter. Uh, Vukovic is actually a pitcher, and they brought him in to be the pitcher that that pitches at the end of the movie. And David Ward took one look at him and said, no, no, you are the big hitter. 
<laughs> I remember when Vukovic was playing, and there's never been a better name for a larger sized human being than Vukovic. <laughs> so when he's, whenever he'd come out, you'd be like, damn, Vukovic is up. So, and he's a pitcher. And by the way, not a hitter, had never hit no. a home run ever. Uh, he rarely come up because he played for the AL, which yeah. says designated hitter. He rarely ever hit, but the look of him just conveyed that possibility. What a dream come true for him to be able to right do a movie Play where better. he can hit home runs. Well, and apparently he was a huge character, and he had story. He drank a lot. He's a hard drinking look baseball at him. player. Yeah, I mean, please. He, he, he had a story about drinking all night before pitching a game. Literally rolled in drunk from the bars into the locker room, went out on the mound, t- threw a few warm-up pinches, puked on the mound, and then pitched the whole game. <laughs> That's <laughs> baseball right there. Baseball. <laughs> That's what you do when you're young. Yeah. That's the only sport you can do that. <laughs> um, Except for golf, maybe. And golf, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tiger's golf like, and bowling. I, I watched, a, it was a Cal game, actually, and I watched, uh, it was a really good quarterback. I've, Cal had several good quarterbacks. Aaron this wasn't Aaron, yeah. This wasn't Aaron Rodgers, but it was another good quarterback who was out on the field. We had heard he'd had the flu, and I watched him puke, you know, come out of the huddle, puke, and then throw a touchdown. Yeah. And I was like, that's... <laughs> That's it right there. In the NFL in the 70s, they had linemen who, if they were sick or had the flu or whatever, they would throw up onto the player they were blocking oh, kind of get an advantage. So men are dirty, <laughs> dirty. It's a dirty, dirty gender. Disgusting. We're a dirty gender. But, yeah, they would do that. So puke oh has been God. used quite a few times in sports. <laughs> I think there's a whole book on the usage, many uses of vomit in professional sports. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Wesley right. Snipes. Pull out, pulls out his gloves uh, because he plans on stealing 100 bases. Uh, he's based on Ricky Henderson, by the way. Yes, he is. And he takes a nice lead off of first, and Vukovic says, your shoe's untied, and they tag him out. Yeah. And then we watch a really, really bad game. Vaughn into the windup in his first offering. Just a bit outside. He tried the corner and missed. Ricky Vaughn comes up as pitching. He walks the bases loaded. Ball four. Ball eight. Low and Vaughn has walked the bases loaded on 12 straight pitches. Boy, how can these guys lay off pitches that close? And our, our diehard fans start singing Wild Thing. Wild Thing! You make my heart sing! And that is the origin of that name. Vaughn in deep trouble here with Clue Haywood, last year's American League home run champ at the plate. Vaughn kicks, fires. Here is a swing and a drive toward left field and deep. Oh, boy. No way. No way. Too high. Too high. It is gone off the reservation. A grand slam home run for Haywood. Hey, everyone. This is Steve Morris, your favorite Cinephiles editor, jumping in just for a moment to let you know that what you're about to hear was actually recorded before the George Floyd protests and the subsequent changes to brand names, trademarks, and, of course, that football team headquartered in Washington, D.C. I feel really, I mean, the fact that we still have professional teams named after Native American stuff and all the references to teepees and wigwams and off the reservation is like, yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot. And like everybody dressed with head head dress, you know, in the the fans. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you're a Redskins fan, so... Look, I, I have been on the record on my sports show saying over and over again that I support the name change if they make the change. Um, I try not to say 
uh, Redskins. I try to say Washington professional football team, but that gets to be a lot after a while. And so, you know, you cop out and I'll just go skins most of the time. So it's not as, but I'll be honest with you because the movie is the way it is. I don't find this offensive when I watch it in the movie. Uh, maybe my girlfriend, if we watch it, cause she's half native American, maybe when we watch, if we ever watch it, she can tell me if she feels offended by it once. But once again, I think they're not saying it in a way that's negative, you know, but I get if people are offended by it, totally makes absolute sense. You know, you know it all goes to this weird thing of uh, how, how highly do you value intent? I don't think there's mm. any intent to offend yeah, right, in this exactly. film at all. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like, you know, right. Well, and, you, and it was bad back then because you had that smiling Indian that the Indians yeah. were. That, was, that logo was terrible, man. So a tough start for the Erie Warriors as they drop a heartbreaker to the Yankees, 9 to nothing. Post-game show is brought to you by Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. <laughs> Euchre was so amazing and so great, and so was the young guy next to him. Oh, like, yes. To have the young uh, guy to react and kind of be the foil to Euchre yeah. to, like, so that we could see <laughs> his reactions to some of the things that Euchre said. Like, it was so great. Well, and just the gag of this guy basically doesn't speak. Right. Yeah, exactly. We spend the whole movie yeah. till we get to. He's not the best color man in the business for <laughs> <Yeah, nothing. right. laughs> uh, Jake is on a payphone. She gave him a fake number, of course, but he knows where she works. So he heads to the library, sees her behind a counter. I told you, I don't think it's a good idea that we see each other. Why not? Because we don't have anything in common. Sometimes I wonder if we ever did. What are you talking about? We were both athletes, world class. Hot for each other. What more could we have in common? I stopped being an athlete three years ago, Jake. Books are my life now. He says, you still sore. I never read Moby Dick. Uh, you never read anything I asked you to. All right, I'll check it out now. Oh, is this the whale section? By the way, I've read Moby Dick twice. Yeah. I don't get it. It's not, it's not in the whale section either, no. by the way. <laughs> it's good to know. This is not my favorite book. I read I it a... Read it it's not mine either. Well, I read it yeah. a second time because I literally went, okay, look. Everyone says this is one of the great American novels. Maybe I was not mature enough. Maybe I need to try it again. I did it again. I'm like, it's okay. Not my thing. Melville's a tough read. I mean, Billy Budd's no, uh, you know, no walk in the park either. So it's, it's a. It... Yeah, but it's shorter. <laughs> yeah, true. Very true. I'll bet. What's his name at the restaurant? Tom. Read it. His name's Tommy. Keep your voice down. What do you see in this guy? Well, he's stable, intelligent, and I never found him in bed with a stewardess. And Jake's response, and this is where I go like, you really shouldn't be with this guy. His <laughs> response to that is, that's because no stewardess would have him. Mm. <laughs> that is not the way to get a girl back. Kate. When you're watching this, as a teenager, when you were watching this, were you just were you cheering for Jake, even though he'd done this this bad yeah. stuff? Yeah, yeah, because it's not until recently that we all, all of us ladies, were like, "Oh yeah, we don't need to accept certain kind of behavior." <laughs> but, but like back in the day, it was like that's what you thought. You know, like you wanted right. to, you know, I guess to be chased after, or you know, that was a tactic, a tactic that. That you were like, oh, he really wants me. He wants me back. He wants right. to whatever, you know. Yeah. It was societal cues that were like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to go. Right. And so I'm supposed to feel it. But then, yeah, you're right. It's it's yeah. Now it's completely. You- this idea that like a, women could have their own stories that you could have like, you know, like a league of their own or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, like was not what people were thinking when you were, you know, however many years ago. It's over 20 years ago, you know, right. like so. uh 
Yeah. I don't know. Like, and you got caught up in, I mean, I've been joking about and not so joking about how hot I thought Tom was, but like people thought Charlie Sheen was super hot. You know, like you just get caught up in the, like, you know, when I, when I was in college, I dated a baseball player for uh, a couple of years. And there's something about like that, like sport, like collegiate guy that was just, you know, and you, your bar was super low on what you accepted as like good behavior. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you found him in bed with a stewardess? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now I'd be like a flight attendant. Uh, but oh, right. uh, I apologize. You're right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> um, and, and, but it does, to, to, to your point, um, it does seem that they had some pretty amazing sexual chemistry. Jake, not so loud. What about the three nights we spent on the beach in Veracruz? You ever have nights like that with Mr. Brief? What about the night you had in Detroit with Miss Fuel Injection? I mean, in defense of this, he has to start from a bad place because otherwise, if he was like, if she noticed that he was really changed, she would be like, oh, I don't want to be with that guy. I do want to yeah. be with this guy. True. So she has like story-wise, it has to be like, oh, he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed at all. And then throughout, she sees that he's changed and then mm-hmm. she ends up showing up at the end. You, you always want to be in question of whether or not she's going to be there at the end. Yeah, I, um, I totally agree with you in terms of screenplay structure. But where I disagree in this case is I don't think he changes. Is that his he, he in terms of him with the team and being a mentor to Vaughn and being mm-hmm. the go-to guy? Totally. But she doesn't see him do any behavior. I mean, she doesn't see him sleep with anybody. But she doesn't see him be a responsible person. She just knows that she, that he's right and that she is with the wrong person. That is yeah. true. Um, and so, and I think what's kind of nice is she may show up to that game and there's like pictures of her. I think the last shot is like her with all the, with all the baseball players, which is kind of like, like the one woman with this team as they're winning, but who's to say they end up staying together at the end of it? You know, I I don't think so. Well, there were sequels. So (laughs) I have have literally no memory of what I've never watched. Oh, really? Yeah. Please don't. Please don't ever watch the sequels. They're terrible. I think because I love the I love Major League so much that I I just couldn't bring myself. I think he but, ends up managing the team. Berenger does, which that so, makes sense. I think that's where it's setting up to go. And they have one they scene with Rene Russo. They do. He they have one scene with Rene Russo because by that point, by the sequel, Russo had become someone that you wanted to put in a bunch of films. So she only came back for like one scene with him. Oh. So yeah. You know what's also amazing about this is that I can't believe that's Rene Russo's first movie because right. like she was in her thirties, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For that movie. Yeah, Which but she was a successful. Then. She was a successful model, I think, for a long time, and then made the transition. Yeah, that makes sense. My my favorite Renee Russo, by the way, is Tin Cup, where I think she's so great. Yeah, um, she's hilarious. And it's just by the way to put the the punchline on on the setup. Well, what was I supposed to do? She bet me fifty bucks. She had a better body than you, and I had to defend oh, her. What a bunch of bullshit! I have a much better body than she does. In the middle of the library, and of course, everyone turns. Rushes. <laughs> is a good capper. But but to your point, Steve, it shows that he hasn't changed because he embarrasses her again in front of a room full of people. Her reaction is caused by his comments. So when she looks back at him and she says, you haven't changed, it's true. She's saying you haven't changed because you've embarrassed me again uh, in front of all these people. Yeah. But the most of all you theme song starts to play under that scene. It does. And we love it so much that we're like, oh. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> like, well, no, I'm just waiting to see what happens. Yeah. It'll come out. It'll come out. It's going to happen. Quarter of the season's gone. We're 15 and 24. Seven games out of first. That's bad. It's not bad enough. How about a series of fines for good play? 
Maybe a $30,000 bonus for the guy voted least valuable player. Maybe the problem is we're coddling these guys too much. Cut to the airport, and they're out on the runway going, what's going on? By the way, they had to keep the Northwest plane in frame for an extra, like, seven seconds in order to get the product placement money for this shot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that is not their plane. And the DC-3, which is a prop plane that ends up being the new Indians plane, they actually had to push in a frame. That thing barely (laughs) barely could move at all. and we're on a you know a little scary flight thing with a couple of visual boat jokes like Serrano crossing himself, and Harris with a hustler magazine turns to him and says, "Now you come around around." <laughs> um, and we have another game where they they uh, lose and Euchre makes some jokes. The only excitement for the tribe provided by Rick Vaughn, who set an American League record by throwing four wild pitches in one inning. Hey, congratulations, Rick. We're in a bar afterwards, and someone comes up and asks for Ricky Vaughn's autograph. Our first autograph. Couldn't give these away a couple of weeks ago. I saw your record on the news. You made their hall of shame. I get to do something good to be a celebrity. Not if you do it colorfully. (laughs) More jokes on the terrible plane. By the way, there's a great, weird reaction from Corbin Burnson while wearing a blindfold that I think is really funny that I don't know. I really want to know, like, what was the direction that David gave him to make Corbin Burnson go like like that? I know no one can see that except the two people I'm talking to. Um, The sleep mask. More losing. That's all. We got one goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry. Nobody's listening anyway. (laughs) Uh, Now we're outside the airport. The plane is broken down. And Jake is reading a classic comic of Moby Moby Dick. Um, Which, and again, this is not changing. I think it's baby steps changing because at least he's reading the comic of it. He'll get to the book at some point. No, he's still bullshitting her. (laughs) Kind of. I do think it's realistic. Yeah. Oh, like sure. I, think, I agree. I think it's like a really realistic thing of this, like, <laughs> you know, baseball play, like a, a sports guy with a pretty lady, you know, yeah. like. Yeah. Um, by the way, so we're going very slow and I'm having a great time, but I will try to uh, pick up our pace a little yeah. bit. I, I hope you're doing OK, Kay. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you need another glass of wine. No, I'm, I, I, Are you wine I drinking? Haven't had, I haven't even had dinner yet. Let's see. Well, no one said wine was on the menu. I, I would have opened a bottle. All right. Go ahead. Wine's always on the menu. We're in a quarantine. Um, Just bust open a stout. How about that? There you go. Um, <laughs> right here. Um, go I'm just going to do a little cocaine. Hold on a second. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Look, we're doing an 80s movie. 80s That's movie. Just... I was going to say 80s movie. <laughs> Hey, everyone. This is your favorite editor one more time. Just jumping in to let you know that I was not, in fact, doing cocaine. Now back to the movie. Hey, Jake, man, why don't you just go over there and see her? I mean, maybe she'll let you slide on a couple of these. Well, I would if I knew where she lived. That's easy. Just tail her home from the library. What do you mean, sit in the car and wait for her to come out? That's kind of juvenile, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is what uh, he does. And we do see her license plate that says read. And she goes <laughs> into a building. She walks. He walks in behind her, sees, like elevator and stairs and then he goes out to a bar to have a drink to you know get up his courage get up his courage walks back in and goes up the elevator and walks right into the room and first of all apartments where the elevator goes right into people's rooms is weird and second of all are there no locks on doors in cleveland like how does he just waltz into this place i don't know about it back in the day huh 
Like mm. maybe not. Well, it's the penthouse, right? So yeah. you, the door, the elevator opens to the penthouse. Like you right, walk but how right do you get into the How do you get into the building? That's the where David probably had a little bit of license there. Just like put him in the elevator. Well, and I wouldn't have so much of a problem with it if he doesn't do exactly the same thing when he goes into her apartment later on. That's true. You know, this is like twice where you just walk into strange people's apartments. It's like, yeah, well, you can't show him like Jimmy in the lock. That just would look wrong. But this setup is really funny, which is he walks into this place thinking it's her apartment. It's not her apartment. It's his apartment. And they're having like a dinner party. Yeah. And it is a very wonderfully embarrassing situation. Oh, Mr. Taylor, right? Lynn's told me a lot about you. Uh, Why don't you come in for a while? (laughs) Um, The actor who plays the love interest, whose name I do not have in front of me, Mm -hmm. um, he is such a good and very particular kind of asshole. It's very 80s yuppie asshole. Mm-hmm. And he introduces the friends and says he's a baseball player. And they're like, what team do you play for, Jake? The Indians. Here in Cleveland? Mm-hmm. I didn't know they still had a team. Yeah, we got uniforms and everything. It's really great. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the other two couples are so well cast and do yeah. so much where how little they have. Like there's the younger woman who's obviously instantly attracted to him and turned on. I've heard baseball players make very good salaries these days. Well, but it depends on how good they are, I guess. How good are you? I make the league minimum. And her look of disappointment at this moment is so like, oh. Right, but she's turned on him when she says, how good are you? That's oh, when yeah. she's like, gets all like hot under the collar. hundred here's, percent. So here's what's funny. This is a thing I, A, I love about Google, and B, the influence of the movie Major League, which the first thought I had was, what is the league minimum in 1989? And so I I went on Google and I typed in baseball league minimum, and you know how Google autofills things? And it said 1989. (laughs) Because apparently most people searching for that are searching because of this movie. Like sixty-eight thousand or seventy thousand. It was, ex- it was yeah, exactly sixty-eight thousand yeah. dollars. <laughs> and then the average household made thirty thousand, so he made double. Yeah. So the, the argument was it was respectable. <laughs> right. <laughs> he made a respectable living. What are you gonna do when your career's over? I mean, you can't play baseball forever, can you? Ha, something will come up. Will it? But by the way, watching it this time, I was like. Yeah. I know what you're going to say, 100%. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, because when he says, oh, something will come up, will it? When I was in my 20s and 30s, I thought like Jake, now that I'm in my 40s, I totally understand what that guy is saying when he says, will it? It's basically saying, yeah, that is not the way to go through life. And he's right. That's not the way to go through life. you got to have plans. It's not just future. It's not just that. This guy is engaged with this woman. Yeah, Her true. old boyfriend comes back, breaks into his house, you know, has has asked for her phone number while he's at dinner with her and, you know, is obviously trying to steal your girl. You're perfectly justified to be kind of a dick to that guy. Well, why keep him in the house? That's the other thing, too. Like because he is an asshole. He's playing with fire. Yeah. I thought I'd go to Hawaii, have a couple of kids to grow up to be Olympic champions. <laughs> oh, really? In uh, what event? Swimming. The 200-meter individual medley. I figure it ought to be real big by then. That's a great moment. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you were an athlete, weren't you, Lynn? <laughs> What'd you do? 200-meter individual medley. 
And the look of realization that goes around the room. <laughs> I love it. It's so funny. Yeah. And again, this is why, like, although the guy is an asshole, he's really justified. I mean, like, this guy has broken into his party and yeah. said, I want to take your girl away and marry her. Yeah. And I'm declaring that right here. Right. They do a really nice job. David does a really nice job of making the rich people feel s- snotty. Mm-hmm. So that it feels like, you know, Jake is this is the guy she should be with, even right. though he's also equally like <laughs> it's, in different ways. Yeah, she should just be on, Lynn should just be on her own. <laughs> <laughs> she seems like a great person. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you start that liberation stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh man! <laughs> and and, and Jake, is, Jake is heading out, and and he and he says to asshole guy, "I'll let you know if I land a job. I know you're very concerned." <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, just wanted Linda to know what she would have had ahead of her. Uh-huh. Stay away from her. Suck my dick. <laughs> Suck my dick. I I don't think I've ever seen it delivered better in any other film. That line, uh, <laughs> or in life, I've never seen anybody deliver it as perfectly as Tom Berenger did in that moment. Would would it be too small a topic to do the top ten uh, line readings of <laughs> "Suck My Dick"? Oh my god! For the top ten sh- show, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'm sure Nost would be up for it. <laughs> I think you 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 haven't done uh, uh, you haven't done a top ten show on top 10 like best lines or no liners or comebacks <laughs> but i don't think suck my dick is the one we want to go with <laughs> a family show yeah exactly <laughs> Hey everyone, this is your editor jumping in for the third and final time to let you know that yes, a discussion of the line, suck my dick, is in fact where we're going to end part one of our exploration of Major League, which seems to me to be oddly appropriate. As always, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. They really help the show. We love reading your comments on YouTube. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles if you want to buy or stream major league via amazon prime you can do so through our website cinephiles.net and if you want to follow the show on social media you can do it at cine underscore files on twitter the cinephiles podcast on instagram you can follow me at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram john you can follow at the roca says and our special guest Kay cannon who we're so grateful to have on the show I highly recommend following her at KK Cannon. That's K A Y K A Y Cannon, C A N N O N, on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, we will be back next week to conclude our epic exploration of Major League right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>